0: Follow their particular students, not based on the particular size of the school district in and of itself. So, we ensure that if there is even one student who is at a small district or a large district, and that one student is a recipient of Title three maybe English Learner, you know, or Title I Part A, that those monies are there again for the purposes of uh, closing the academic achievement gap.
1: And welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above. The show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by...
2: What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 19 in the classroom for me. And this year, of course, is all the above. You're home for news and analysis of all things pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to anybody who is joining us for the very first time. Know that we are available on YouTube for sure. Video episodes, super dope editing and all that good stuff. Super dope guests and all that. But also as a podcast on every podcast streaming app. So however, however you found us. Welcome. We hope you enjoy what you hear or what you watch. And uh, if you do, please remember to hit that thumbs up. And and also, do know that we have so so many past episodes with a lot of really dope guests ranging or speaking on topics ranging from early childhood education, shout out to Ms. Mr. Enna from last episode, all the way to like pretty much anything you can think of. There are very few topics that we haven't touched on yet, Jeff. We are we are spanning every corner of the education landscape here on this show. And it's December, mid-December, early December-ish, and holidays are approaching, winter break is approaching. Jeff, how are you doing as this year
1: winds down? Well, Manuel, I will say uh, doing well, doing well. It's definitely a crunch time in my universe of work, uh, getting ready for a big uh, mid-year event that we have uh, coming up fresh off the break, or really before the end of the break in January. Uh, so uh, so a lot on the plate right now. Schools, of course, are busy just, you know, trying to sprint to the finish line here uh, at the end of the first semester. So to all of the uh, tired educators out there, <laughs> I feel you. We feel you. And uh, hang in there. Just, uh, you know, a couple weeks to go here. Yeah, for sure. And education is such a
2: odd space when it comes to, like, new year season because you know we have our year like um, you know my life pretty much is defined by the school year in terms of like what year i was doing this what year i was doing that and then there's the calendar year which completely splits the school year so it's always odd because we're winding down a year but we're only nearing the halfway point of our year so it's just one of those things, one of those yeah, complexities let me, let me of being in, an educator. Let
1: me throw in one more layer on that for you. Because if you yep. work in the education nonprofit space, uh, as as I do, man, well, there's also the fiscal year. It's uh, oh. <laughs> a layer on top of that, <laughs> uh, which for many organizations is like, you know, June 30th or July 1 to June. June uh, I can't talk. July 1 <laughs> to June 30th every year. So there are many years, many constructions of years. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know. As Einstein uh, perhaps let us know, it's it's all relative, Manuel.
2: Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Multiple years, multiple complexities here in this education world that we uh, serve in, and you know, one aspect of this education world, you mentioned fiscal year. I'm somebody who, as a classroom teacher, I've never really clearly wrapped my head around like the fiscal aspects of education in particular, uh, with regards to funding. It's always been so complicated and all that stuff. And I don't believe we've discussed that on this show ever, really, besides obviously references and our do now stories to uh, items related to school funding and whatnot. So Jeff, I don't know if you're okay with this, but I was thinking today, uh, maybe on our agenda, I was wondering if we could do something around school funding and like trying to understand it because a lot of our listeners are our parents and caregivers and other folks who care about education, but aren't really in those meetings at the district or at the state or at the federal level around all these numbers and formulations and all that. So I don't know, man, is there is there a possibility that our agenda for today could uh, take some time to try to understand the fiscal aspects of this education thing that we are working in?
1: There is more than a possibility, uh, Dr. Rustin. There is, in fact, a probability of one, uh, that today's (laughs) episode uh, is going to talk about just what you mentioned, Uh, folks. We are super excited to be having a guest with us today uh, who works for the California Department of Education, uh, Malik Abdul Kalik, who oversees uh, the monitoring of federal categorical programs uh, for the state. And for those who might be saying, well, what does that mean? Folks might know, and especially anyone who's a homeowner and pays property taxes uh, knows that you contribute in your state, your local tax dollars to the state funding mechanism uh, for public schools and your federal taxes uh, also provide supplemental or at least in theory, what should be considered supplemental funding to school districts, especially to school districts who are serving certain marginalized populations. So this includes low income students. This includes English uh, language learners. This includes, you know, students who may be pregnant, um, that sort of thing. So uh, we today are having guests Malik Abdul Khalid is going to help us um, kind of unpack and understand not only uh, I think to your point, uh, Manuel, how some of these things work, but also Doing so with a bit of an equity lens, right, and really thinking about what are the ways in which school funding intersects with the history of racism, classism, uh, discrimination in our country, with things like you know redlining that shapes residential patterns, that impacts school patterns, that impacts our funding system. So we're hopefully going to connect some dots today, um, educate folks a little bit about how these systems work, and also think about what does it look like for our government budgets to at least try to help us close certain equity gaps in our educational system. So it's uh, going to be a fascinating conversation. Uh, you definitely don't want to miss it.
2: Well, Jeff, it sounds like we're going to learn today. It's going to be some learning. We're going to get our <laughs> learn on um, around this. So folks, again, all of the above, we try to take a look at news and headlines and and things going on in the world of education and more than anything we try to push our thinking around the system that we are serving in and working in and i myself am somebody who have worked in the system for a very long time but i don't really understand school funding very much at all so i very much appreciate having all the super dope guests that we have on the show uh, to expand my understanding of this very complex system that we are that we are immersed in so That sounds super dope, but up first, we have our Do Now. We're going to take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. All right, that's coming up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at some news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today?
1: Well, Manuel, what would be more fitting as we prepare uh, here to close out the semester and enter into the, uh, in some households anticipated and in other households dreaded uh, winter break, depending on how those grades come in. Uh, so we got a report card for everybody today, Manuel. Time to give out some uh, pain and suffering, uh, as, as I think we should think of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the way to think about grading, Jeff. It's a <laughs> teacher's way to flex some power, divvy out that pain, remind them who's boss, that is, um, that's what grades are for, Jeff.
1: Unless you're hippie liberal uh, communist um, Dr. Rustin, who gives all the kids A's, uh, hashtag participation trophy. Um, <laughs> so you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yes. All right, Jeff. Well, forget all that participation stuff. The first grade that we have for today is, in fact, an F.
1: Mm. Well, like I said, pain and suffering. Uh, yeah. Some, somebody's getting a lump of coal in the stocking. Uh, yeah, F, not good. It might be too late for you at this point in the semester.
2: Might be. And that lump of coal, Jeff, is very, um, that, that's just right for this story. Because this F is in relation to foul air, mm. funky air. Really, mm. air that is polluted. And of course, you know. Coal has a, a lot to do with that in many cases. And this sure story does. is a reference to uh, a story about air pollution and the impact that it has on young children, particularly as it pertains to their reading and math ability early on uh, in their developmental stages. And this story comes to us by way of the Washington Post, thanks to some reporting by Amudala Ajasa, who actually turns out, Jeff, turns out uh, this reporter is from St. Paul, at least according to their Twitter bio. So, uh, you know, St. Right. Paul in the building. Word. Nice. I like it. There we go. Um, And she reports about a recent study that was published in Science Advances that shows that young children living in neighborhoods with high rates of poverty are more likely to be exposed to many different air pollutants that can harm their development during early childhood. In the study, lead researcher Jeffrey Wadke and his team show that cognitive gaps are formed as early as six months old and are entrenched by age two before children even start school. Now, previous literature and research already exists on early exposure to air pollutants and the relationship with lower cognitive test scores. However, Catherine Carr, an environmental epidemiologist and pediatric environmental medicine specialist, okay, go ahead, at the University of Washington, says that this study provides a stepping stone to understanding how air pollution affects other factors that may influence children's healthy neurodevelopment. She adds, or she's quoted in the story as saying, clean air is part of the prescription for every child to meet their full health potential, including cognitive health. Now, lead researcher Jeffrey Walkie told the Washington Post that, quote, the study is showing that children born in high poverty neighborhoods are more likely to be exposed to many neurotoxic air pollutants. And that those differences in turn are linked with inequalities in early childhood development, specifically reading and math abilities measured around the time of school entry. So Jeff, that foul air, polluted air, impacting young people, particularly young people who live in poverty stricken areas. Now I know you are no uh, neuro what was her title? Environmental epidemiologist and pediatric environmental medicine specialist. However, you are a super dope educator. And I wonder what your thoughts are about this story.
1: Yeah, Manuel, I have so many thoughts about this story. Uh, Some of my first thoughts are very vivid memories as an educator who kind of grew up in New York City of uh, taking the bus across the Triborough Bridge into the Bronx every day to go to work uh, from Queens into the Bronx. And the Triborough Bridge is a very high high bridge right so you're you know 10 12 15 stories in the air on this bridge so you get kind of a skyline view of the city as you're coming in um sounds beautiful Harlem and then it it is beautiful and one of the things that you could see when you're a teacher and you're on your way to work at you know the crack of dawn (laughs) literally and seeing the sunrise is the hue of smog of brown Filthy air into which you are descending <laughs> to go to work all day, right? Um, and you also see um, the major freeways that circle the entire Bronx, um, with the largest concentration of semi trucks um, going to the you know the um, the ports, the grocery distribution centers, to all the you know sort of uh, engines of our markets uh, in the biggest city in the country just spewing diesel fumes, heavy particulate matter into the air, right? And recognizing that not only the school that I worked at but many, many, many other schools are within, you know, a few hundred feet uh, or maybe a few blocks of said freeways, right? Um, And so are many of the residences, the public housing uh, developments and other residents of folks um, in the community. And, you know, on on more than one occasion (laughs) did it hit me like, huh, I wonder what it's doing to all of us that we are breathing this every day, you know, and then finding myself occasionally on, on bad days throughout the year, you know, Blowing your nose or whatever, and seeing some like gray stuff in there that you know didn't come from you, right? And so, you know, that's that's just one piece, Manuel. Since I have lived here in L.A., uh, now this pro this problem has improved slightly, but there's uh, some schools that I work with on the east side of L.A. and Boyle Heights, and on the on the border of East L.A. Um, that, at a certain period in the history of this city, Manuel, every day would just smell funky because of the uh, the exhaust emitted by some battery recycling plant or something, uh, you know, a few miles away, right? So this whole community is just covered in this funky smell, right? And I'm like, what is that? And they're like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, it comes from over there. <laughs> like, this is this is what we deal with every day. Uh, you know, in the community of Watts um, here in Los Angeles, there are, you know, recycling plants right next to schools, right, so that there is just a, a sort of, uh, omnipresence of air pollution, uh, both in close, close, uh, close proximity to school buildings, and also close proximity by extension to the homes where most children live who go to those schools. Yep. And uh, I really appreciate the authors bringing up this piece, Manuel, because I think it speaks to the to the the understandable yet mythological narrative we have told ourselves uh, about education which is poverty doesn't matter all you need is an effective teacher and everything's going to be fine and we can just educate ourselves out of poverty and i get why people think that and i get the you know the the sort of uh, righteous impetus for that sort of thinking and it's simply false from the standpoint yeah. that there are structural issues in our society like this, where we have air pollution, lead, and other kinds of metals and contaminants in the water. You know, lack of access to food. These sorts of things, which closely track poverty and residential patterns, um, that have. Quantifiable, observable, negative consequences on students' ability to both come to school consistently consistently in healthy ways with things like asthma, and also, should they manage to overcome that and get to school, interfere with their ability to learn with things like delays in their cognitive development, or messing with their, you know, ability to get a good night's sleep, or these sorts of things that are, you know, that are spoken to in this article. So I, I appreciate this story, Manuel. It kind of infuriates me because I'm like, yes, we know. And like, what are we doing about this? We just right. sweeping under the rug, right? Um, but I, I think this is a much needed story to be told.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is another reminder that climate justice intersects quite directly with racial justice. And if your anti-racist agenda does not include climate justice within it, then that's a major problem. Because here we have these effects on our environment impacting our young people and disproportionately black and brown young people, marginalized young people who live in these neighborhoods who are already feeling all the impacts of poverty itself, but also having this foul air. So there's that. Also, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about learning loss and there's folks out there who are up in arms about learning loss and those folks I don't think have paid much attention or say much about the lost learning that's happening at the tender age of two when these students are so far behind in their neural development and some of their some of the neural development issues are according to the study entrenched because of the quality of the air around them so if you care about students being behind because they had to uh, remote school or uh, being behind because this or that, but you don't really care about students being behind, young people being behind, perhaps for life, because of the quality of the air in their neighborhood, then I don't know if you really care about learning loss at all, actually. Um, Also, this makes me think about folks out there, you know, in in Los Angeles, you you were mentioning the the Bronx, and out here in Los Angeles, so many families, because of the cost of housing, the rising cost of housing and the housing crisis, generally speaking, so many families have had to move out there to what is considered the high desert, Inland Empire area. And I've before on this podcast referred to the Inland Empire as like the dusty area of Southern California because that's my childhood memory of visiting my dad in Moreno Valley, just a lot of dust. Um, But nowadays there's so many and, you know, I want to apologize for that. I want to apologize for that. Lovely folks out there in the in the, in the Inland Empire. Shout out to everybody who's living out there. Uh, Riverside, Merino Valley, uh, and all that good stuff. Um, but now, you know, it's in the news quite a bit now because of all the warehouses being built out there. A lot of warehouses being built out there, and we are seeing already the impacts of having so much trucking around that area and the, what that's doing mm-hmm. to the air. And as all these families have had to move out there because they couldn't afford to continue to live in, in this Los Angeles city proper, they're also being impacted by all that pollution, which so far is apparently going pretty much unchecked. So yeah, it's, we, we have to have to prioritize and do more discussion around climate justice and how it is involved in our overall efforts for educational justice because all this is intertwined all of it is linked heavily to poverty and our young people some of them are are starting off just so far quote unquote behind because the the, the air that they breathe is toxic and that's a giant problem. So shout out to everybody involved in this study for helping keep it on the forefront. Because again, it's not surprising. I think a lot of us either knew this or, you know, consider that this is probably a likelihood. But um, it's it, it bears even more importance now as we face ongoing climate catastrophe and battles over learning loss and all that good stuff. So yeah.
1: Yeah. I just, I just want to echo one thing you said, uh, Manuel, before we move on, which is uh, I appreciate the, the calling out of the learning loss hypocrites. Okay. And that, that might be a harsh thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyways, because all these people who are beating the drum about the learning loss and how devastating it is at the learning loss, and this is a generational crisis we have to address. What about the learning loss? Ain't saying a damn thing about the dirty air, about the dirty water, about any of the other issues, man. Yep. And so and and certainly not coming at those uh, the cul- the quote unquote culprits. I shouldn't even say quote unquote culprits. The actual culprits actual, of yes. these things, major industry uh, in this country that are spewing death into the atmosphere and harming our children. But they got they are here. They got all the smoke for the teachers who you know whose union said, "Hey, we don't want to die because we have to go to work. So let's be cautious in response to this pandemic, especially before we even had a vaccine." So there we go. Like. Come on, folks, if you're if you're about that life, if you're about that learning loss life, I expect to see you on the front lines of the clean air conversation as well.
2: Damn straight. Damn straight. All right, Jeff. So that grade was an F. That was an F. Straight up. Mm. What about our next grade? What we got?
1: Well, man, well, I got some good news for you because. uh, okay, this for this letter grade, we're just going to say we're just going to come out with some swagger, man. We're just going to say aced it. Aced it. Ooh,
2: I like that. I like that. You know, sometimes, Jeff, I'd be thinking, you know, all the conversations we have here, things could get just really, you know, depressing sometimes because all this, Mm -hmm. you know, what we just talked about, the environmental conditions and, and lack of funding and all this stuff there's just so much out there so i'm glad we finally have a story where we've aced it i assume this is a a, a feel-good story about i don't know teacher compensation or students doing awesome things finally we're we're highlighting some of the positive things going out there where we're just going to take a time out from talking about trauma and poverty and all that stuff uh-huh. for once jeff yes. thank you so much for that i do appreciate that you're
1: you're very welcome dr Rustin. very welcome okay now now back to um the real world. Uh, <laughs> so I will say though, this story is like both kind of good and kind of, you know, kind of like, hey, let's let's go. Uh, so let's get into this here, folks. Uh, this story comes to us uh, from Elizabeth Aguilera uh, in the Cow Matters. And she's writing about a topic that frankly, we talked a lot about on this show a couple of years ago, Manuel, uh, around ACEs being adverse childhood experiences and the California state's effort to both identify students who have experienced ACEs and do something about it. Uh, So here we go, we're gonna jump into this. In 2020, the state launched the Adverse Childhood Experiences Initiative with the goal of cutting the number of those experiences in half within one generation. But the state is failing to track whether patients receive follow-up services or the support that they might need. More than six in 10 Californians have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience, and one in six people have experienced four or more. These include things like physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, growing up in a home with substance use, mental illness, incarceration, parental separation, or divorce, or intimate partner violence. Since the Office of the California Surgeon General began this program under uh, former Surgeon General Nadine Burke Harris, about 900,000 children and adults on Medi-Cal, which is the state's insurance plan for low-income people, have been screened. Uh, Private insurance companies are required to do the screening, but they aren't required to report. Um, So, after screening a patient, physicians may make referrals to therapists, nutritionists, social workers, or other support services. A score of four ACEs is used as a marker for doctors to offer referrals. Uh, One of the goals of the screening is to prevent future adverse experiences. For adults with children, it's critical, says Emily Williams, CEO of the ACEs Aware Family Resiliency Network. Quote, one of the best ways to prevent adverse experiences in kids is to take care of the parents and help them treat their own mental illness, their substance use disorder, help them not die, help them not go to prison, help them be safe and strong parents so they can help prevent the intergenerational transmissions of ACEs to their kids. That is a huge role for providers End quote. Now, the state reports that people with four or more adverse experiences are more likely to experience depression, become addicted to drugs or alcohol, or become homeless. They also have twice the risk for heart disease, triple the risk of chronic lung disease, and a 70% higher risk of kidney disease. This is why providers connect patients with additional services when they report four or more adverse experiences. So Manuel, uh, Interesting that we are revisiting this story we first touched on, I think, with some some real excitement a few years back, and now seeing some progress. Right, uh, the state is collecting this data for hundreds of thousands, probably millions, uh, of people, and we are seeing that the infrastructure to do something about the fact that people are reporting, experiencing these ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences, which we know are closely correlated with all kinds of negative social and educational outcomes, uh, we're not yet responding to it. So, uh, you know, some progress, Manuel, yet some room to go. I mean, what's, what's your take on this?
2: Yeah, definitely room to go. A lot, actually. And when we did first discuss this, it, it was quite a few years ago. It might have been during our season one, I think, possibly. Um, but in any case, I I do remember critics at the time. I don't remember if either of us said it. I wouldn't be surprised if if you maybe brought this up. But I remember critics at the time saying it's, it's lovely to have this plan to screen, you know, all young people uh, for ACES. But if it's not going to be attached to actual action, then you have all this data for what? And, and you know, and it sounds like the screening has gone way up, which is you know obviously uh, something to to be proud about in terms of having information about um, you know just who's impacted by what and what who needs the references and who needs the help. But the infrastructure doesn't seem to quite be there to make sure that everybody is being connected to the services that they need or to even make sure that we have clear data on how much of these folks are being referred to anything. Uh, So, you know, a lot of work to be done. So those critics from from a few years ago who said, what's the point of screening everybody if you don't really if you're not going to do anything about it? Then you know I I imagine they see something like this and say, see I, I told you this would be a challenge, and I think it's a, it was a predictable challenge, just like the challenge of expanding access to preschool, for example, universal pre, uh, preschool. One of the challenges has been, well, we don't really have uh, quality. Uh, early childhood educators enough to to meet the needs of everybody. So we have all these uh, research, uh, all these stories and, and studies showing that it's been really inequitable in different neighborhoods and different areas. Um, you know, it's it's, it's it's a problem. And we just got to continue to work to expand, in this case, access to services, access to quality services, and just make sure that folks are being uh, referred to the right services. And I think that's a reasonable problem. And it's a reminder for me personally that, you know, when we celebrate something um, groundbreaking, like in this case, it was a, a groundbreaking um, selection for for a state um, um, Surgeon General and, you know, Nadine Burke Harris, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, that, that was a groundbreaking story. And screening everybody for ACEs was a, another thing that folks celebrated, and it was groundbreaking. But it's just an important reminder that, like, there's a lot of a lot of work that comes with that, and it's you know it's just can't you know we can't celebrate so much and pat ourselves on the back and move on to the next thing and I think California especially does does a lot of that does a lot of like some groundbreaking legislation or policy or some something that just hits the headlines and it's like hell yeah, but then it's like ah uh, the actual you know bringing it to action bringing it uh making it actually you know uh serviceable on the ground that takes a lot of work, and by then a lot of folks have stopped paying attention, so you know. Yeah, there's
1: that. Yeah, you know what you're making me think of, Manuel, is two things. Is that they're like this feels like a little bit of a sort of social equivalent to when you order something uh, or you buy a product at the store and it has a little label on it that says this product uh, contains chemicals which are known to the state of California to cause cancer, and you're like. Okay, thanks for telling me, but like, yeah. if, if we know this stuff is going to kill me, like, why am I allowed to buy it? Why is it coming to my house? Why is this in, like, my pillow yep. and my blanket and, <laughs> like, you know, these things that I kind of need for life, right? It feels a little bit like that where you're like, I, you know... Is it better that I know or would I rather just not know and live my life in peace? Now, I'm, I'm joking when I say that, uh, but that's kind of one layer of it. The other thing it really makes me think of, Manuel, is the uh, quote I think I, I think this is attributed to James Baldwin, which is something like, you know, not every problem that is faced can be overcome, but no problem can be overcome until it is faced, right? And in that sense, I do feel like it's really important that we have this data because, uh, and I am grateful that the state has taken this step because this is this is data that allows us to not sweep under the rug uh, the issues that we know are are more at the root cause level of a lot of the social phenomenon that we like to just blame on schools in particular, right and say like oh the kids can't read or the, you know these sorts of sweeping statements, uh, which you know, of course schools have some responsibility. Um, in that area. And we are not sending people to school with the right conditions to support their healthy development, to support their learning, to support their ability to engage. Right. In far too many situations. And we're not resourcing schools or resourcing other social uh, agencies, right? I mean, the article talks about how just like there's teacher shortages, there are also shortages of nutritionists and physical therapists and mental health, uh, you know, workers and therapists, right? And so, you know, we are seeing a a kind of structural under-resourcing of the things that we need to care for people at the same time as we got, you know, nice liberal politicians out here talking about not only should we not defund the police, we need hundred thousand more police across the country or whatever crazy number they, they are funding now with our, with our federal tax dollars. So, you know, in the, in that sense where our budgets are moral documents, we have made choices about where we're willing to invest dollars and where we're willing to say like, well, if it takes six months for you to get in to see a therapist, you know, or you don't have mental health coverage as a part of your health plan. So you have to pay out of pocket, you know, good luck.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I've experienced that myself as a teacher. You know, this this also had me thinking about, you know, how many students I've referred to this or that type of service. And, you know, I, I'm wondering about these physicians or these folks who are supposed to make these referrals and I'm sure a lot of them do, and they don't really follow up because they don't really have it in their, you know, capacity to follow up on everything because of of just you know, the the nature of the work. And you know, as a teacher, I've referred to I refer students to all sorts of stuff, and I don't always get to follow up because it's just it's I'm swimming in so much as as a classroom teacher, and there's so many students and there's so many challenges. And I, I recall a student who who was receiving some services and needed those services to be ongoing, but summer break was coming and those services were not going to be. Be available during the summer. And that just speaks to what you just said about like, we just have a lack of like support. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough services out there to meet the needs uh, that we currently have. And we continue to invest so much money in policing and in other things that that aren't helping uh, with our our overall problem of trying to really boost the number of nutritionists and and therapists, mental health providers and all these things. So so there's that. And I was also thinking about what you just said about like the label about, uh, you know, this product contains this and that, whatever, which is known to to cause cancer. And for folks who don't live in California, maybe you don't see signs like that, but in California, they're, no, they everywhere. They they're everywhere. They do, they see of it some, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, every and even the, yeah. the, the building that I teach in has one of those signs right at the front door, like right as you walk in, like, you know, prop whatever, whatever warning. This, uh, and it's just like, okay. So it's nice, I guess, that the information is out there, but you see them everywhere, and it's like, what are we supposed to do about it at this point? So it's another one of those, yeah. Um, we seem super liberal and progressive, and look what we did—we're letting you know, okay. But then what? Like, where's, where's the actual support on this? So yeah, you know, ongoing fight—the fight continues, of course. Well, folks, that about does it for this edition of the Do Now. And we hope you enjoyed it. And remember that links to the stories that we talked about are in the notes below. If you're watching this video, there are notes below. Or if you're listening to the podcast, wherever the little episode notes pop up, we have links to these stories so you can read them for yourself, all right? Up next though, up next is our seminar segment and we are gonna hopefully demystify the complexities around school funding and where school funding fits into this general overall picture of trying to do right for our most marginalized populations those who have been historically historically underserved all right that's coming up next stay tuned
1: Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we are on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch, okay? All you gotta do is go to aotashow.com slash support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. all right folks welcome to today's seminar thanks so much for joining us today and we are thrilled to have with us a uh, very special guest someone with some real deep expertise on an issue that honestly i don't think we've really tackled uh before definitely not in a seminar um, on all the above we certainly talk all the time about budgets and funding and the equity issues associated with those things but rarely do we really get into the weeds of how our schools are actually funded in particular from the federal level and what that actually means for school districts, for schools themselves and the kinds of programs and services that our young people uh, receive especially when we are trying to address equity gaps uh, in education. So we are very excited to have with us today uh, Malik Abdul-Khalik, uh, who works with the California Department of Education. Uh, welcome, Dr. Abdul-Khalik, to all the above.
0: Thank you very much. It's a uh, it's a pleasure you know, to be on your on your show. Thank you very much.
1: All right, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest today. Dr. Malik Abdul-Khaliq is a consultant of education programs at the California Department of Education. He serves as regional team leader of federal program monitoring for the San Diego, Los Angeles, and Sonora regions. Dr. Abdul-Khaliq is also a scholar of ethnic studies and the author of the books Ashley's Racialized Asymmetry, and Ahaj Travelogue, Ibada Explored on Leaves of Letters and Pebble Stones of Poetry, as well as Woke, Poetic Prose on Identity, Pedagogy, Politics, and Equality. Dr. Abdul Kalik earned his doctorate in Cross-Cultural Studies from Walden University and a Master's in Multicultural Education from California State University, Sacramento. Uh, Again, welcome Dr. Abdul Kalik to the show, and I'm gonna kick it over to Manuel for our first question.
0: Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Yeah, Dr. Abdul Kalik
2: in the building. Thank you so much for taking Thank time out very to be here with us on All of the Above. Uh, certainly, we're very happy to have you here because, you know, I myself, classroom teacher, 19 years going so far. And honestly, school funding has always been something that has really confused me. And even though I've been in this industry for so long, there's just a lot that I don't know, and I can only assume a lot of our listeners and viewers are also not really super clear, uh, really, on all the jargon and all the different uh, elements associated with, with school funding. So so your role at the California Department of Education deals with compliance monitoring and making sure that, that schools and districts use their categorical funds as required by law. Now, a lot of folks are like, categorical funds, compliance monitoring? Already, already, I'm lost. So... Help us out some. Uh tell us a little bit more, a little bit more about your role there and also um, how it's associated with the overall picture of fighting for equity and
0: justice in our school system. Thank you very thank you very much, Dr. Rustin. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Uh one of my roles primarily, and and for, for posterity purposes, you can call me Dr. Abdul Khalik or let's let's Break it down to Malik. That's that's all fine and Danny. Make sure me a little thing. bit more make, make me a little bit more approachable, not seemingly a, a government individual. Um, <laughs> one of my, one of my roles, one of my primary roles at California Department of Education as a review lead is to determine and select uh, what LEAs, local educational agencies and their subsidiary schools who are recipients of categorical funding. Categorical funding are those governmental funds, uh, federal funds as well as state funds from Title I Part A all the way to Title IX, or including adult education, the CARES Act, which was recently implemented uh, as a result of the pandemic to, uh, uh, again, to attempt to close the academic achievement gaps for historically disadvantaged students. So when we're talking about categorical funding, as I alluded to earlier, we're talking about Title I, Part A. Title I, Part A was brought into, uh, into being with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act way back in 1965 are uh, and when we're talking about social, uh, talking about bringing in equity, you know, for social purposes, that was one of the instances where, as a result of the tumult that has swept the nation, you know, from the civil rights movement, um, addressing education, you know, as one of the components with respect to what makes up inequities within a the social milieu, um, was one of the things that was addressed. So, Elementary Secondary Educational Act of 1965 brought into existence the Title I, Part A program, again, for the purposes of closing the academic achievement gap for historically disadvantaged students. That sounds like a euphemism and it somewhat it is, but I want to be real here. What that spoke to was the um, academic achievement gaps for historically, historically disadvantaged students, black and brown students, primarily, um, and rural students, poor students. So with that act that was brought into being categorical funding was um, implemented. It also carried in uh, addressing adult education. Also, it also brought into being addressing English learners. So we uh, implement um, how we we implement how LEAs, local educational agencies, are using those particular monies to close up those gaps and ensure that extra services above and beyond those services that naturally fit or are afforded by school districts through general funding. These categorical findings are supposed to be an additional layer you know of funding and services you know for those particular students. Um, just one more mention here as I alluded to earlier. so with respect to categorical funding, with respect to my job, as a review lead, I identify those particular school districts based on a set of risk assessments. Some of those risk assessments are uh, size of your categorical programs. Categorical programs, as I alluded to earlier, could be Title One Part A, could be Title Three English Learners, could be homeless education, which is critical in this day and age because each day, and each day, maybe as um, as a result of issues that are facing the unhoused, um, school districts are not spared, you know, from those particular unhoused instances because we're finding that many unhoused folk our students and how we identify those individuals are sometimes the euphemism could be used as their surf uh, their couch surfing couch surfing implies that that individual does not have a permanent place of residence so such that individuals identified as an unhoused individual and, and in the state of california also um buttressed by a federal the federal government we have homeless education services that are utilized uh, for LEAs, local educational agencies, as well as subsidiary schools to support those particular, those particular students. So I don't mean to be as long-winded here, but we do a great deal of services with respect to identification of uh, those school districts. As I said, size of categorical programs, um, we implement uh, how schools are using uniform complaint procedures. Uh, uniform complaint procedures can you uh, focus their attention on the Williams notices. Uniform complaint procedures have focused their attention on particular LEAs as well as schools who may be utilizing uh, anachronistic or outdated um, curricular material, as we see sometimes, you know, is a result of social inequities. So um, also one of the risk assessments that I use to identify a particular school district as well as the subsidiary schools uh, for categorical, um, categorical uh, review are also the uh, size of the categorical programs. Um, I want to make sure I'm I'm covering every here. Size of categorical programs, fiscal allocation also. So the size of a particular school district or and when I say size of a particular school district, um, the monies follow the particular students, not based on the particular size of the school district in and of itself. So we ensure that if there is even one student who is at a small district or a large district, and that one student is a recipient of Title III, maybe English learner, you know, or Title I, Part A, maybe at a targeted assistance school or a uh, school-wide program, that those monies are there, again, for the purposes of uh, closing the academic achievement gap. Closing the circle with respect to what I do is I ensure the the degree of accountability. So when we conduct the federal program monitoring review, we're ensuring that school districts as well as Uh, the local schools are utilizing those particular monies uh, for purpose of closing the academic achievement gap. If they're not, uh, we provide technical assistance as well as um, compliance assistance. Some school districts may be out of compliance and it's the expectations of California Department of Education that subsequent to uh, the conducting of a federal program monitoring review and the the conducting of federal program monitoring reviews are of two sorts, either on site or online. And when we conduct these federal program monitoring reviews, um, as I said, we originally select 130 LEAs, 130 local educational agencies throughout the state of California. As you alluded to Dr. Uh, Rustin, when you introduced me and, and Jeffrey, as you as you introduced me, I am the review lead for the region of uh, San Diego and Sonora and some of these, um, and some parts of Los Angeles. For the last seven years i was the review lead for los angeles los angeles district uh proper so um, when i i share i'm sharing that information because i'm not the only review lead i am also sharing my particular position with five of my other colleagues who conduct very much the scope and breadth of what i just had enumerated earlier so we visit all school districts the length and breadth of california from crescent city up in the northern northern part of california all the way down to the southern border, you know, which is right um straddling San Diego, you know, and and Mexico. Didn't mean to be so long winded with that, but I do a lot. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it absolutely sounds like it. Um, Yeah, so appreciate the very thorough uh, explanation there. Um, And want to actually kind of go a little bit deeper in in one direction here, which is, you know, you mentioned all of the breadth of uh, federal programs that you oversee uh, that are speaking in particular to various types of, I guess, uh, you know, I would say uh, marginalized communities within our Countries. So, yes. you know, addressing low income students, students who are unhoused, um, addressing, you know, Title IX and issues with uh, gender equity and, you know, in education. And, and the list goes on there. Uh, English learners. Yes. Um, so these are really structural efforts to try to uh, correct for some of the history of inequity and discrimination that, of course, we, we know well um, in this country. And I'm wondering if you can kind of help our viewers connect some dots here because, um, you know, the history of redlining uh, mm. that uh, addresses or results in residential segregation mm. and its connections to, you know, patterns of educational inequity with schools and school funding uh, you know these are interconnected issues that might be um, hard to you know uh, to see how the picture kind of fits together so I wonder if you can speak on that a little bit for uh, for our, our viewers and our listeners
0: oh yes thank you very much for that uh, for that cue um, usually two times a year I'm, a, I'm an invited guest speaker over at University of California Berkeley over and uh, there are social uh, for la- for the Latina Latina Latinx class, and particularly for this class uh, on social inequity and reproduction, social inequity and reproduction. And in that particular course, I I um, delineate my duties, you know, as a California Department of Education review lead, and how it intersects with uh, my my scholarship in the fields of ethnic studies. You know, I love my job. It it, it affords me the opportunity to um, I consider myself along the lines of a and Uh, scholar, uh, polypoetic, uh, pedagogy of their press, Um, being able to uh, implement essences of practice and theory and then arrive at praxis. So how I do that is, um, as I alluded to earlier, at the outset of being able to identify these particular local educational agencies and their subsidiary schools. Um, And I said, I have an easy job because in February or February, March, what we're doing is we're identifying those particular school districts, you know, that are going to, or that are going to be undergoing aspects of either on-site or online um, federal program monitoring review. And again, I'm emphasizing those school districts and their subsidiary schools that are recipients of Title I Part A monies or Title III, Title III monies, and along the entire scope of uh, categorical funding. Now, when I'm saying that is, uh, so when I'm selecting the particular school districts and the schools, I have a tendency to notice, and I'm sharing this at, at Berkeley, and I'm sharing this on this particular uh, podcast. That when I'm and when I'm at Berkeley, I have a I have a tendency to ask this particular question at this graduate level, at this for for this particular class uh, of Latino, Latina, Latinx students, and I ask this question. I'm like, how many of us here are first generation going college students? Invariably speaking, the numbers are always ninety percent and above. Ninety percent and above and i and i asked secondly i'm like let me let me venture to to pr- presume or guess here that the area that you are from that area that you are from maybe not may not be an affluent area i know the answer but i just like to as a you know as a scientist social scientist be able to uh buttress this information and invariably speaking the answers are invariably invariably 85 or 90 percent plus so the reason I share that information is when I'm talking about aspects of my, my job at, for, with California Department of Education, I'm like, it's easy for me to make the selection of the school districts that are going to be reviewed for Title I, Part A, and Title Three, because I noticed that if I were to bring out a color-coded map, a color-coded map, and these color-coded maps were created in the year 1934, and here's where we're connecting the dots. In 1934, there was a governmental... Agency called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Now, this is critical that I'm. What I'm talking about here is because we have two types of segregation. We have de jure segregation and we have de facto segregation. De facto segregation, people are customarily accustomed with that theory. Is you know we see people living together and we have a tendency to think that birds of a feather flock together. You know, people are uh, living together because they want to live together. Uh, language is spoken. Uh, you know, culinary. Um, cuisine aspects shared, uh, ethnic uh, racial histories shared and things of that sort. De jure segregation is something quite different. De jure segregation is individuals of ethnic or racial uh, subsets who are living together as a basis, as a result of the deliberate governmental practices and policies that were used as as discriminatory practices. So I want to bring this back to the Homeowners Loan Corporation in 1934 was created as a governmental tool to, number one, save those number of uh, mortgages, homeowner, homeowned mortgages that were at the risk of um, going, going south. 1933, that's not too far from 1929. 1929 was when the bucket fell out, when the bottom fell out with respect to, um, uh, the, the, the bond market, the stock market. 1933 was, again, when the government decided to, again, save the majority of white homeowners, you know, uh, who were at the risk of their mortgages defaulting. When they decided to save these mortgages that were at the risk of defaulting, what they decided to do was hire real estate agents to go and, and assess the risk of these particular properties. And one of the things that was determined at assessing the risk of these particular properties is where the individuals lived at and where the residential areas, uh, what areas that they they were in, either a where they were determined to be residential areas or construction areas, you know, or indivi- uh, areas that were inundated with pollution or things of that sort. That where the word where, where the term redlining comes into play is the homeowners loan corporation created color coded maps of every metropolitan city. In the United States, every metropolitan city in the United States, and gave one of four color-coded grades to uh, particular cities and particular metropo- metropolitan areas. Red was uh, an area that was designated as a negative place to for a bank to uh, consider taking risk in extending mortgages to individuals. Um, green was considered the most safest with Blue and yellow in between. I'd be remiss if I didn't share also that in order to earn a red designated area, that place also had to be a place that was um, approximated by or lived in by black folk, lived in by African African Americans. So those places that were designated as red, banks would not extend mortgages to individuals who lived in that particular area. So that was again, that was the result of the Homeowners Loan Corporation. In 1934, we find that the Federal Housing Authority was created. And the Federal Housing Authority was created for the purpose of kickstarting the suburbanization of America. But we also find that the federal government involved itself in creating instances of segregation where segregation didn't exist, because in order to be a candidate to be a recipient of federal housing authority, mortgage loans, again, an individual had to be non-Black, had to be non-Black. So we find that not only the banks, not only the banks uh, precluded extension of mortgages to individuals who were Black, but also entire neighborhoods, entire neighborhoods. I'm thinking in particular to Richmond, California, where a particular, uh, Rawlingwood, a, um, a, a suburban area was created consisting of 170,000 170, living units. And how you impact 170,000 living instances and, and create a situation where no one there is able to own a house who is black or brown. Is then you institute restrictive covenants? So I'm trying to connect the dots here. Restrictive covenants were put into place where mortgages had, I mean, deeds had written deliberately into them that either a a house could not be sold to an individual who was identified in that particular house as being black or brown. This extended also to the particular area that the uh, that the house was in. I think we have a tendency sometimes to forget that schools serve the immediacy of the residential areas that make make them up. If the particular residential area has been identified through either A, as the homeowner loan corporation with redlining, no services being extended, no mortgages being extended, no services of home ownership being extended to the individuals who live in that particular area. This is why in 1965, the Elementary and Secondary Educational Act was kicked into place, recognizing that additional services had to be provided to those particular residential areas that had the worst operating schools because they were completely absent of any additional services in the form of um, uh, services that individuals who own their own homes can, can do utilize to improve the academic performance, you know, and and. Trajectory, you know, of the students there. Now, it's a long-winded way of of wrapping everything up, but sometimes we have a tendency to to think that um, Title One Part A or Title Three monies, you know, are just a newfound, j- just a newfound bandaid, if you will, you know, just to close up particular gaps. So some of these gaps have been so long-standing, and. Just the other day in the paper in Sacramento, I live in Elk Grove. Just the other day in the, in, in the Sacramento Bee, there was an article in there about the federal, um, the Veterans Administration. Now, the Veterans Administration also was an, uh, a governmental agency that was created as a means of extending services to um United States vets who have served, you know, in the military. And one of the benefits is, of being a, a vet is you had either a reduced I mean, uh, um, monies that were extended to, you know, a, as a form of loans for for being within the military service. However, this particular article that came out in the paper identified that the individuals who were discriminated most in this particular deal, if you will, you know, were African Americans and Latinos and Latinas and Latinx. You know, so again, it talked about how the immediacy of the lack of those particular fundings impacted them not only on a residential level, but also on the school level also. If you don't own your own home, or if you had access to, uh, less access to some of those resources that particularly flow freely within a suburban area or whatnot, um, these individuals, you know, were deprived of of those particular equitable services, if you will. And just real quick, one of the categorical programs that uh, is in existence when we conduct federal program monitoring is educational equity also, EE, educational equity. So, educational equity is it, it, there to ensure, uh, for all students who are attending schools, K through, through 12, through adult, that, um, especially with, with respect to what's going on right now, uh, LGBTQ, you know, LGBTQ and those particular services are being extended to particular, uh, to those, those students. In the absence of any type of uh, bullying, you know, or, or, or things of that sort, you know, that 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 the customarily go on. So that was my long-winded answer for <laughs> for, for for that. But I mean, when yeah. we and, and if I may, Doctor Rustin and I, we met each other. You know, um, he probably doesn't remember, but I was conducting. Uh, a federal program monitoring review of John Muir High School. And this was a couple of years ago. So I was just, I was on the campus, I was passing through, you know, and I was there for those particular purposes. John Muir High School was identified as one of the schools, you know, because it's a recipient of Title I party monies, as well as Title III. And we're there for the purpose of, you know, uh, it's not a gotcha, but it's there. And I usually try to draw, and I usually try to make this analogy. It's a triangular relationship, if you will. Um, the bottom corners of the triangle are occupied by educational partners. We at California Department of, Ed- of Education, we're educational partners. And the educational partner occupying the corner opposite of us, those are their respective local educational agencies and the subsidiary schools that we're visiting. However, the cardinal educational partners in this whole triangular um, relationship are those who are situated right at the top where they should be. And those are the students. So, presenting it in, in that sort of philosophical way, if you will, um, it it does, in a sense, uh, lessen the gotcha or the sense of uh, uncomfortability. You know that school districts or schools customarily feel when we're we're coming out there. But I try to reframe it in a sense of look, we're trying to ensure that. Uh, those services that should have been there customarily for all for all students. and one of the things also that we ensure that there's a degree of comparability when we're conducting the federal program monitoring review also is meaning that at the bottom level, all schools and all school districts should be comparable with respect to how they're conducting their affairs, irrespective of the res- the reception of uh, categorical monies, meaning that categorical monies are only there to. Provide extra services. Everybody first should be dipping into their general funds, um, GF, but general funds.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I mean, when, I mean, for one, the history is so long and so complex that it's difficult to address something like redlining and its connections to education in our schools um, in a brief way, really. And after decades and decades, going on almost a hundred years since um, you know the original efforts that produced what we know now to be redlining, um, the impacts are still out there and the in- impacts are still quite visible uh, to points that you made about um, the students that you see invariably coming from from um, areas that are, uh, quote unquote, disadvantaged or have been marginalized or or a red line like where where I teach. Now, a lot has been done. Folks have been fighting for greater equity in school funding for a very long time, knowing that mm-hmm. our, our funding formulas are not um, nearly uh, doing enough to address decades and decades and decades of underfunding and, and, and inequitable approaches. So um, we want to just maybe take a moment to just ask, like, what's your what's your assessment of the current state of, of school funding? A lot has been done in, in here, in California, the local control funding formula is a more recent effort to try to do better and make sure the monies uh, get to where they're most needed. So how would you assess um, where school funding is now, uh, particularly considering um, how traditional approaches um, haven't quite... Closed, uh, so-called these these historic gaps. That, that's a
0: very good question, Manuel. That's a very good question, Doctor Justin. Um, so I think one, two approaches that have been made with respect to um, undertaken by California Department of Education, um, LEA plan provisions, you know, as well as LCAP, um, local control and accountability plan. Let me go over both with respect to the LEA plan provisions. You know, this is a, a way of trying to bring local control. Of how funds are used, you know, and funds are identified, uh, for shoring up those particular gaps. So how the LEA will monitor students progress in meeting challenging state academic standards, you know, and some of those challenging state ac- academic standards are, and this is critical by developing and implementing a well rounded program of instruction, you know, to meet the academic needs of all students. And when I'm, when we're saying all students, all students is critical, but not, not just, uh, saying all students in a, arc sort of sense and hoping that it captures everyone's no but being able to identify students who may be at risk for academic failure also providing additional educational assistance to individual students you know the LEA or school determines needs help in meeting some of these particular challenging uh, state academic uh, standards as well as identifying and implementing implementing instructional and other strategies intended to strengthen academic programs so one of the ways that um and especially with respect to that last one, identifying and implementing instructional and other strategies. So, some schools are some schools know about this. Some school districts know about this or, or don't know about this. Like for like for instance, Title One Part A. Title One Part A monies can be used for um, for purposes of increasing <laughs> professional development. Professional development um, of of particular Teachers, you know, or other or or other paraprofessionals, with respect to critical and culturally relevant pedagogy. Now, I know I I may be throwing out a a very thick term there, critical and culturally relevant pedagogy, but that is the type of pedagogical practices or, or approaches that have a have a means of determining what or or determining how particular students, you know, whose narratives have routinely been marginalized, how we can engage them. Um, also, with respect to, you you had mentioned earlier, the LCAP. What um, with respect to, now the LCAP is a three-year plan that describes like the goals or actions and services and expenditures uh, to support positive student outcomes, some of that student outcome that I uh, have alluded to earlier. And there's a couple of components of the LCAP, especially for the 2022-2023 LCAP. LCAP, again, uh, Local Control Accountability Plan. Um, some of those could be local control funding formula, budget overview for parents. And this is where parents are engaged. This is where we see it as the California Department of Education that, again, with this triangular relationship, with, with students being situated at the top, one of the critical ways to ensure that equitable services are included are to engage parents also. Supplement uh, to annual updates for the 2021-2022 uh, LCAP planning summary engaging educational partners, um, goals and actions, also increased and improved services for foster youth, English learners and low income students. So all of these particular things that customarily sometimes are used uh, or seen as wraparound services. These are all included within the LCAP and within the the LEA plan. I wanna go over one more thing here. Um, also, th- some of the components of the LCAP are focusing on action tables as well as as well as instructions. Now, if I can bring this right back to what I was talking about compliance monitoring. Um, one of the things that when we're, comp- when we're done with the compliance monitoring on site or online, uh, we do provide a report of our particular findings, if you will, what our discoveries were. And the relationship doesn't stop there. The relationship is an ongoing relationship. It's the expectations of California Department of Education that any findings that are resultant of a federal program monitoring review be, be resolved within a 45 calendar day period. However, our attention is on the systemic practices of that particular local educational agency, because again, the, uh, the reason why we're there, the reason why we're conducting the federal program monitoring review is a result of Uh, CARS Consolidated Application Reporting System, the particular LEA, Local Educational Agency, applying for those particular funds, being a a recipient of those particular funds, signing a set of assurances. Those assurances are promises that those particular monies or categorical funding will be used for, again, closing the academic, academic achievement gap. And then just for the purposes of accountability, because we're driven by the federal government also, We have to ensure that those, that form of guidance that we provided, technical guidance and compliance uh, guidance that results in a finding, those findings have to be resolved within a 45 calendar day period. However, as I alluded to earlier, um, since the focus is on the systemic nature of some of those academic deficiencies, some of those uh, academic services deficiencies, we extend to a maximum of 225 calendar days from the last day of the review. In order for, uh, if a school district should request an extension, you know, because again, those those the focus is on the systemic nature, you know, and elimination of the systemic systematic nature with respect to how some subsets of students, you know, are uh, left out of this whole pedagogical affair, if you will. I know that was a long-winded way of, of trying to fold everything in, but um, we do have an an eye on trying to mitigate at best the perpetuation of those social inequities. Um, is it a perfect system? I don't think there is you know, such a thing as a perfect system, but bringing it closer to where individuals exist with, the, with respect to the local control, you know, a- accountability plan, local control, as well as local control funding formula, local control. And nothing can be more local than one of the most powerful agencies that exist that's included that that's included within this um, federal program monitoring review or, or within uh categorical funding or school site councils. When we come out to particular schools that are recipients of uh Title I Party monies or, or some categorical monies, it's incumbent upon them by the state as well as the feds, you know, to establish a school site council on that particular school site. And as I alluded to earlier, it's a very powerful organization because that particular school, that, that particular committee, the school site uh, council is responsible for identifying how the use and how the extension of those particular funds are going to be, are going to be handled. I had shared with some of my colleagues, maybe about 10 years ago, um, and, you know, PTAs used to be a very powerful thing. They still are, you know, And and I was sharing that. Individuals are pretty are soon going to be using the PTA and the school side council as a as a point of departure, as a launching mechanism for their political careers. I don't I don't have a claim to clairvoyancy, but I think I was right with that. I think I was right with that one. And that just shows, and that just shows how much power, you know, and how much focus the local, uh, the local issue has has undertaken. And again, if I may, bring this right back to. Why we conduct aspects of federal program monitoring? This is a result of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. You know, again, for the purposes of bringing that that type of control to those individuals who we saw what was going on, and, you know, in the civil rights uh, you know civil rights movement and things of that sort, um, to bring some control back to them and and how they distribute or disseminate you know some of these means to close up uh, some of these academic achievement gaps.
1: So, Dr. Abdul Kalik, in our in our last couple of minutes here, we did want to try to squeeze in one uh, final question for you, which um, I think is building on you know on on some of the things you were just saying. Really, is kind of looking ahead, right? And so, in this environment where there's uh, just a tremendous amount of rhetoric around learning loss and response to the pandemic, and there's been major new infusions of federal dollars into public school systems across the country. At the same time as there's now maybe escalating worry about an upcoming fiscal cliff in many uh, school districts, wondering what your take is on kind of where we should be pushing uh, in terms of, you know, sort of your lens on educational financing um, especially with a, you know, with an interest in addressing issues of inequity and and marginalization, and what role should educators, parents, students, uh, you know, play in making that happen?
0: I think one, and that's a very good question. I think one of the um, most positive things that we've seen recently, you know, is the there's a bill that's out that, and that has passed. And, matter of fact, we have been having this conversation very in the in the halls of california department of education with respect to how title one part eight is going to be increased to use um funding for arts for the arts that's critical um because there's been so much focus on stem and 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 i'm saying that's that's a very important thing science technological you know engineering and mathematics however we've recently incorporated another uh, vowel into their announcement A science technology science technology arts you know engineering and mathematics team um so with that emphasis on incorporating uh an an eye on arts we're thinking that it's going to be very critical and the social and the school superintendent school superintendent for public instruction uh Tony Thorman T- Tony Thurman we're we're thinking that's gonna be critical with respect to in, incorporating, including more students who have been marginalized, more students who have been turned off, especially with respect to the last 10 years, you know, because either A, they weren't respected with respect to where the minds, their minds were working, and I'm not saying deliberately, you know, but with less funding for the arts, for music, for um, uh, other arts, literature, and things of that sort, where some students have gravitated toward um, we would notice that when we would be conducting aspects of the federal program monitoring review, um, that we would be asked those questions like, how could we use these particular fund, th- this funding source to capture, you know, or or increase the self agency of these particular students, you know. Um, so, again, as I alluded to earlier, is it a perfect system? No, we're, there's a lot of tinkering with it that that we're trying to do um but with respect to uh eliminating some of the inequ- some of the inequities that exist uh if we're considering a looming recession on the horizon and we know that with recessions uh a scramble for resources those you know those who are already doing without have to even tighten up their belts more I'm thinking more with this local control funding formula and LCAP that the consideration the media consideration of those in immediacy of where the funding is required will have more of a say as opposed to the bureaucratic processes that used to occur in the past where decisions would make be made at a centralized office. You know, it's now been decentralized and the use of said funds is determined as I alluded to earlier by the school side council with input also by another very powerful uh, committee too, and that's the ELAC, English Learner Advisory Committee. So I don't think it can get any more local or powerful than that. Um, As I alluded to earlier, these particular committees are being used as launch boards, you know, for people's, uh, some people's political careers. And that's a good thing. I don't think anything could be more powerful than that and and a determiner or a um a genera of political action, you know, and uh and educational uh All
1: right. Well, uh Dr. Abdul uh Dr. Malik Abdul khalik my apologies there. Um no, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And uh, folks, that is it for today's seminar. Uh, We are very grateful for you joining us today. Um, Our amazing guest, Dr. Malik Abdul-Khalik, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on your show. All of you. Thank you.
1: All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar, but stick around for our class dismissed. All right, folks, we have reached that time in our episode where we like to pause for a moment, reflect, and give some love, some shout outs to folks out there in the world of education, just doing good things, doing good work. Uh, so Dr. Rustin, who do we got for today's class dismissed?
2: Yeah, man, well, this one's an interesting one. You know, last, the last full episode we had, we talked about kindergarten, and uh, certainly, certainly, we don't talk about early childhood education enough. So this class dismissed goes to a very unique Preschool, a very unique preschool program that's on wheels, like literally the preschool class is on wheels so they could drive around and offer services to young people who otherwise wouldn't have access to preschool in the first place. All right. So for today, we want to shout out El Bucecito. The Little Bus Preschool in Colorado, which is run by Valley Settlement, a nonprofit that delivers free early childhood and family engagement programs to Latino immigrant families in Colorado's Roaring Fork Valley. El Bustecito operates four buses that travel to five neighborhoods to provide bilingual preschool education for nearly 100 children in the community. Now, there's photos of these buses in the article that we uh, pulled this from, which is a Mother Jones article by Emily Tate Sol. Sullivan. Definitely check the link uh, below to, to read more details about it. But these buses are gutted and they're retrofitted to look just like traditional preschool classrooms. These mobile spaces ho- host three, four, and five year olds in the valley who otherwise likely wouldn't see a formal learning environment until kindergarten, by which time many other peers are already steps ahead. So, a very important service being offered here, helping expand preschool. students who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. And Jeff, these photos are amazing because like you definitely can't tell it's on a bus. Like it's just a really dope preschool classroom uh, where little kids are in there uh, playing with, you know, uh, blocks and things like that. And it's a very dope program making sure to try to capture uh, folks who otherwise wouldn't have access. So shout out to everybody behind these bus preschool programs out there in Colorado.
1: Yes, yes, yes! I love it, El bucecito I, I love the name. Yeah. I love the work. And hey, man, if you know, if we can't uh, bring the people to school, let's bring the school to the people, right? Um, yeah. So I, I love it. I love it.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: All right, folks, well, uh, we have reached the end of today's episode and we want to just give some love and shout outs to those of you who uh, are rocking with us still at this point. You've made it to the end. Props to you. (laughs) Um, And, you know, since you're here, we do have one final ask for you, which is to show us some love, man. Give us that. Five star review. If you're listening on one of the podcast apps, give us the thumbs up. If you're checking this out via social media, uh, like this video. If you're watching it on YouTube, um, write us a review. Five star reviews are especially appreciated, and you know every little bit you can do to help spread the word about all the above um, helps us get the message out and keep the show going. So uh, thanks for being a supporter of the show. Appreciate you sharing it with your network, and we'll keep working hard to bring all the above to you each and every week. Um, Of course, if you wanna support the show, just go to aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support, there you can find Everything you need to know about how to support all the above, how to subscribe, how to get your flyest uh, new all the above show gear uh, and swag. So uh, maybe a little gift for you or for someone else for the holidays can be found there as well. Uh, again, that's AOTAShow.com slash support. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Yeah.